The year is 1197 and the long night has begun. When darkness falls, monsters walk the streets and alleys of the cities, congregating to plot and scheme. Fearing fire, the cross, and the lupines of the wild, the elder Cainites nonetheless seek to guide and control human civilization through centuries-old plots, while the younger vampires scrabble for power, influence, and prestige. Welcome to the world of Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to episode 20 of the World of Dark Ages podcast. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. So, if there are three things that we like, it's Dark Ages, LARP, and Dragon Con. And now all three are combined. Uh, there will be a LARP at this year's Dragon Con that I have promised the people behind uh, to give a little shout out to. So, to all the prodigals of the World of Darkness willing to challenge the worm of COVID, we, we at After the Sunset Games call on you to join us at DragonCon in Atlanta, Georgia this September for three nights of Dark Ages World of Darkness gameplay. In the lands of England in the year 1068, the battle between the forces of William the Conqueror and Githa Thorkelsdottir, the mother of the late Harold Godwinson, the last crowned Anglo-Saxon king of England. Vampires, Fera, changelings, and a few Dark Ages mages will have to choose sides and battle for the lands of England. Prince Dio, the Roman vampire who controls the Normans from behind the Veil of Night, who will still be standing come the battle for the stronghold of Exeter. So if you're going to DragonCon, or if you have some time around that um, time, <laughs> which is um, the American uh, Labor Day, then pop down to uh, to Atlanta, Georgia, and join up. And, uh, well, time to go to DragonCon, eh, Peter? Yeah, well, perhaps not this year, but but as soon as the, the plague is, is done and, and everything, then, yeah, I would really love to go back there because it's it's awesome. And on and I think we mentioned it on, on vampire-related news, you'll, you'll be able to, to meet up with the Crew Shadows who uh, wrote and performed one of the songs on the music from the Succubus Club album. Uh, yeah, exactly. Ages ago. <laughs> Very long time ago. Uh, yeah, I, I have plans to return to, uh, to DragonCon in 2023 if everything goes as, as I want. Uh, and for those of you who've never been to DragonCon, it is really an experience. It's a... Well, from our perspective, it's a very large convention. They have some something between seventy and 80,000 people attending, which obviously isn't uh, anything compared to stuff like... Uh, what is it, New York Comic-Con. and San Diego yeah. Comic Con, like 250,000 people. But I've been to Dragon Con a number of times, you've been to Dragon Con a number of times, yeah. and it's really fun. It's re- it really is. And if, uh, if we do go in 2023 or whenever it is, and we're still doing the pod, uh, and people want to meet up, just give us a shout and we'll fix something. Oh yeah, definitely. But if you're going this year, then definitely check out this uh, this LARP. And I was talking to one of the guys behind it, and he says that they're hoping to to run it every year from uh, from now on until they tire of it. So maybe it'll be cool. there in 2023 as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Keeping our fingers crossed for that. Definitely. Uh, yeah. So uh, the book we're looking at today is The Ashen Thief, the follow-up of sorts to The Ashen Knight. Uh, it is written by Jeffrey C. Grabowski and Sarah Rourke and developed by Philip R. Bull. We start with the cover, and it is absolutely gorgeous. Well done, atmospheric, and about 90% high fantasy, right? Yeah, something like that. It's it's a very... It, it is a gorgeous picture. It's it's very nicely done. Uh, 
uh, the, the artwork is, is quite detailed and uh, it has one of those kind of, uh, I don't know if it's supposed to be a stained glass window or a mural in the background, but it's it's quite nice uh, where where you can see um, both in in the background and and the main character or the only the only person in the picture is uh, a thief stealing through the night and of course he's uh, wearing a a dark hood and uh, and and kind of dark clothes. Uh, but what I do like about it is the fact that it's not it's it's a very dark blue cloak and hood uh, and not a black one because you're actually more easy to spot if you're wearing black in the middle of the night uh, than if you wear dark grays or blues or, or things like that. Um, what I don't like is the overabundance of, of metal studs on yeah. more or less every part of, of this outfit. Uh, so for some reason it's it's quite popular to put on a bunch of studs uh, on on everything in in fantasy and and medieval-ish um, artwork, which is just it, it's pointless and it's wrong and it would probably just ruin your clothes after a while. Yeah, and it's I mean it's a lot of metal that you would have to dull in order for it not to catch the light. Um, yeah, so, yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, so, so the studded padding that he seems to be wearing over his male armor, you can just see a tiny mm. bit of mail poking out from beneath yeah. it. That's wrong. And the, the knife or dagger that he's carrying with that wavy blade is, um, very, it looks very much like a Chris, uh, from, yeah. if I recall correctly, Indonesia. Uh, mm. and you, at one point got wavy blades in Europe. You had the flambeige two-handed sword. You even had rapiers with a flambeige blade. That's hundreds of years in the future. So beautiful picture, but it it belongs in high fantasy. Yeah, uh, so. it really does. Uh, as for the interior art, I think most of it is really good, really atmospheric, especially the chapter dividers, though the less said about page 37, the better, because, oh my God. Um, and not a lot of weapons and armor, though every one of the template characters is given a weapon that is wrong, either for the time period or just in general. So at least there's consistency there. Yeah. Uh, what was your your take on the art, Peter? Uh, well, I, I agree with you that uh, that that it's it's quite good for for setting the mood and stuff like that. Besides the one on page thirty-seven, as you mentioned, uh, the one that that really annoyed me, though, uh, and people might figure out why it's it's the one on the ship on page i can't remember whether it is but it's, it's on a chapter of of piracy uh mm. and uh, and not only is is the rigging completely it's page 54 um not only is is the rigging completely like it, it wouldn't work at all in real life uh but what really annoys me and i think you might be able to figure it out if if you if you take a look at it on page 54 <laughs> yeah it uh, I actually don't really have it's... the book with me. I should. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's, well, it's, it's like I'm. I'm looking at this. We're looking at this, and then no, wait. I can't find the book. Damn it! Uh, Explain okay. it to me well, and I'm, to I'm, our yeah, readers I'm who may not have the book. Well, for, first of all, <laughs> uh, it's it's supposed to be the the 12th century, late 12th century, but uh, the ship has one of these, and I can't remember the English word for it, but one of these small um, rail-mounted cannon. A uh, uh, swivel gun. Yeah, swivel gun. Thank you. Uh, that's that's not really the main problem because you're only like a hundred or two hundred years away from from those actually being uh, available, or hundred or fifty rather, uh, available, and and they were not uncommon on on uh, ships. 
But no, that was one of the first me. places where they put them, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but what really annoys me is the fact that the the steering oar is on the complete wrong side of the ship. <laughs> uh, because it's it's the reasons why it's called starboard is because that's which is for the landlubbers is the right side of the ship is that's where you put uh, the the steering oar. Uh, yeah. And and it's on the left side, the barboard <laughs> port side of the ship, which. Again, I don't know. It might be just that the image has been flipped, but I, I have my pet peeves and I'm going to stick by them. Um, <laughs> but but speaking of the artwork, what I really did like was that when we come to, you have some example characters, uh, not one in the very back, but when, when you have the ones from the different um, Ferrara uh, sets. Yeah. Uh, there, I, I actually like them. They're, they aren't like too detailed or anything, but they they fit the characters they're supposed to portray. So it's not kind of the, the the stock art that we've seen that could just as easily be from, from a modern Knights game. Uh, yeah, these are not see... people that you can just drop into an 80s or 90s goth club. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and so, again, they're not overly detailed or well-made, but they have they have a character and they have personality that actually fits the, the uh, characters they're supposed to portray. So that's that's something that was really nice, actually. Yeah. So we start with a two-page story, and, well, I, I found it a bit dull, I'm afraid. I think the most interesting thing about the story is actually uh, you get a really good look into the personality of a very inhuman Tsumish, and that's not supposed to be the focus of the story. The, the focus is supposed to be this... Prop, uh, I assume younger vampire who's trying to take him out and kill him in yeah. keeping with with uh, sort of the theme of the book um, so it really didn't do it for me no it me neither it, it's kind of weird because it has this it switches kind of back and forth between the perspective of the younger vampire and and uh, it's Mish uh, and yeah it, it didn't do anything for me uh, it was I wouldn't say wasted space but it was it was just meh yeah, exactly. It 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 was it wasn't bad. It just it it didn't really somehow didn't really set the mood for the the book in in my opinion. Uh, the introduction is short but sweet, and I really like the paragraph explaining that we're not dealing with a Victorian era slang filled underworld or classic fantasy thieves and assassin skills. The crime in the Middle Ages was extremely unorganized. Uh, so yeah, I I like the intro. You know that they they it gives you a good, quick look at the book and especially tells you what not to expect. Yeah, I I completely agree. Um, especially and rather from from a modern point of view, one should remember that a lot of the things that we would consider crimes nowadays were completely legal back then, and uh, and and they go through some of it like slavery and. Uh, and and prostitution and stuff like that, uh, which is illegal. At least slavery is illegal. Prostitution is illegal everywhere, but it's still one of those shady deals. Yeah. Um, and and people were involved in it quite, uh, like people high up uh, were involved in all of this uh, back and and would be for hundreds of years. So it's 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 kind of you you have to switch your mindset a bit that what we think is, is criminal today wouldn't really necessarily be back in the 12th century. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, and moving uh, straight into the, the legal area, chapter one is called In Darkened Streets and is supposedly about urban crime, but I think that the chapter wanders a bit. We start with an intro story looking at various crimes and schemes unfolding with canine involvement. Although it was interesting, I think it was a bit too long and meandered a little. Uh, just, yeah, I think there was too much in it. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, it yeah, you, you said it really well that it, it went on for a bit too long. Uh, and I, I'm feeling that we're probably throwing uh, we're we're throwing uh, rocks in a, in a glass house now, but uh, <laughs> uh, well, people are paying for for uh, page count and in in our case, people aren't paying anything for for our uh, yeah, for how long we speak yeah, you so. get what you pay for <laughs> exactly. Um, after this, we look at urban crime in the medieval world, starting with a look at canon and secular law, which are two very separate things at this time. And since you're the one who studied law, uh, I, I think you should uh, you should take point on this section. Yeah, I I, I really liked it, but it's um, it, it's one of these things that what you have is is really cool and and uh, from what I can tell, uh, really well researched as well. But the the book is what is it? It's it's almost a hundred pages long. It's ninety six it, pages. Yeah, and it's it's quite a short chapter on on the thing that you kind of get the the idea that this is what the this book is supposed to focus about, which is medieval law, and and you don't really get as much that that you at least that I wanted to because you you spend pages like we mentioned you had this very long introduction uh, introductory story and you have other kind of uh, sections written in character as well which in some ways it's it's kind of cool because it's it's neatly written at some points but the space you used could be used for better things like for instance more more interesting stuff about medieval law um, b because at least for me, what's interesting about law, and, and it doesn't really matter what what time period we're talking about, but it's like you you can tell a lot of uh, about a society uh, from what is illegal, what is legal, and and what is kind of set down in in contract law and stuff like that, because some things uh, are are much more. Um, if something is important, you're going to have more rules about it because that's you you want it to be dealt with as properly as possible and and for, so so for example in in societies where you don't really own properties or if you're more or less nomadic you don't really get that much about uh, buying or selling houses or, or fixed property or land because it's like no we we don't do that here uh, but in other parts of the world where like owning land is is for example tied to privileges and um, and being able to vote for example or having a say in, in the local community the laws on on buying and owning and selling and, and sharing property uh, are are usually a lot more uh, complicated or, or detailed because it's it's tied to physical or not physical but but to actual power uh, and I would have loved to seen them go a bit more into those sorts of things in in this and and you don't necessarily need uh, like details like yeah in london in 1197 the, these things were legal and these were not because you you often really don't have a use for that but but more like how you can use things uh, or how you can use laws 
to uh, to create the mood and, and set the setting and stuff like that because uh, like for, for example uh, you, you have the laws which are usually laws of lands which are kind of above like in the US it, you would have the federal laws but then on a local um, a local area or a local level you would have ordinances and state ordinances and stuff like that and and you can use those uh, or at least for I would uh, to to kind of set uh, set up what kind of place this is uh, so so just for example uh, I, I when doing some research for this I, I read about um, in the Swedish city of I think it was Söderköping which is one of those cities that traces back to, to medieval times uh, when they were doing archaeological research they found out uh, in in a lot of um, in, in a lot of the houses the, or in the, in the gardens of the houses rather uh, they found uh, basically garbage bins or garbage containers that that all pretty much had the same size, uh, which meant that there were probably a city ordinance about mm. that you, you weren't allowed to keep too much uh, garbage or uh, in in your back garden uh, because that would stink up the place and cause disease and stuff like that. So so you would have to when when your box is full you'll you'll have to uh, tip it out on. On the garbage dump and not just keep it in your backyard and i understand that garbage uh, isn't really necessarily a fun thing to include in your uh, in your vampire game but it's it could be like if you show how the local ordinances differ from city to city it it could give clues to what kind of, of ruler that city uh, is ruled by so if if you have a bunch of yeah, let's let's take the garbage. If you have a lot of, of rules about dealing with garbage, you you can probably tell that uh, the the ruler is uh, interested in that, uh, perhaps because he's having a deal with the Nosferatu who lives in the garbage dump, or because he's a Malkavian who's uh, who's obsessed with cleanliness, or uh, if, for example, you come to a, to a city and you find out that uh, redheaded people are strictly forbidden within city limits after dark. Uh, it might be because uh, the ruler of the city uh, is uh, has a rival that is a ventrude that can only feed from from redheaded people, um, but the mortals don't know about that and they just think the ruler is crazy. So, so you can use you can use laws and and uh, regulations like that to set a mood. Like why why all of a sudden why can't we uh, why can't we bring our horses into this this city? Well, it might be because the uh, the ruler again has the the floor which causes animals to panic whenever he's close by, and he wants to roam the streets at night or something like yeah. that. So, so you can use it for a lot of things. Yeah, uh, and so, I, I, sorry, yeah, no, go, no, yeah finish yeah, off. Yeah, I was, I was yeah. just saying, that, and and that's the kind of of world building and and storytelling advice that I would have loved to see in in a book such as this. Yeah, because I mean, this idea of of, of standardized trash containers sh- also shows a very strong central authority. So it can help to to show that there is enough central authority that they can actually regulate what people do with their garbage. And in other cities, people will just be throwing their garbage any everywhere because the central authority isn't strong enough to enforce that. But I agree with you that that I would have loved to have had this section be longer um, because I find it very interesting and. From what I read, like you said, it it uh, slots in fine with what I know about medieval law. I understand that people might find a treatise on law a bit boring after a while, but 
I mean, if, if you're trying to sort of set the stage for the Middle Ages, one of the things that can really show uh, how different it is, like you said, things that are illegal now were legal back then or the other way around. I mean, in uh, I know in Danish cities, so I assume in, in a number of other cities throughout the Christian world, they had laws about how much you had to go to church. So unless you had a, an exception because you were uh, a tolerated Jew, you had to go to church X amounts of time during the year. And since people would notice if you didn't, that uh, could also become a problem. But that's just something that really sets the stage. Uh, I also think it got a bit repetitive every time it talked about vampiric involvement with certain laws because there was a lot of, remember, vampires cannot appear in court during the yeah. day. And you don't have to say that every time you, you talk about it. But I do like how they how they talked about vampiric involvement and how they, from time to time, brought up the vampiric laws. You have the, the traditions and whatever laws the, the local prince might set and, and how that interacts with... Um, interacts with mortal law so it's good we could have just wanted more of it yeah it it, it is and and i could probably go on for for quite some time just doing it but but again it's i, I find that it's it's an interesting storytelling device um and and again like laws aren't necessarily uh, there to to well of course they're supposed to prevent crimes but but it's also kind of a a um, a, a way to see who follows the the laws and rules. Like for example, in in uh, uh, medieval times and later on, uh, there was uh, quite often uh, a law in in the cities that if you're out after dark, uh, you would have to bring a, a lantern with you. Uh, and and the point of that law was to um, and it usually had to be a covered lantern, so you wouldn't set fire to things by carrying a torch. Mm -hmm. uh, but but the, the point of that law, uh, or one of the points, was was that if you go around with the lantern in in the dark, people people can see you, so it's it's more difficult for you to uh, to stab them in the dark and, and steal their money. Uh, but of course, the the criminals aren't going to care about this. They they're not going to carry a lantern for obvious reasons. But that also means that if the city watch comes upon someone who isn't carrying a lantern, then they can assume that they're up to no good and then they can treat him as a criminal and just deal with him uh, as they see fit instead of having to go through like yeah so what are you doing out in the middle of the night they can just say that fuck it you're a criminal we're gonna chuck you in jail and fine you and and release you in the morning uh so uh yeah so, so you, you can again you can use laws and and regulations in uh, in quite a few different ways um, but there, there was one thing that um, uh, about this this chapter, or my, uh, that, that I thought you would react on, or, or maybe we haven't gone to that far yet. Uh, well, the the next section, uh, the the uh, first half to this half. To, uh, wow, I can't speak today. The first half of this chapter okay. ends You're with <laughs> ends with a look at the crimes committed by the three layers of society. So that's the one I want to get mm. into now. Um, uh, and the three layers are, of course, those who fight, those who pray, and those who toil. And the far the most attention is given to the last for obvious reasons, because yeah. it's the, the commoners who are most likely to commit crimes, mainly because they're the ones that, that might be desperate enough to do it, and the ones where where there are the most laws. I mean, nobles can get away with a lot of stuff yeah. simply because they're nobles. Um 
I like this section and like the last, I kind of wish it was longer because it gives a lot of really cool story ideas and good notes for involving K-Knights. Uh, it also really helps to set the stage for a medieval game because you get some good ideas of how society worked. Uh, for example, they spend a lot of time talking about, as we've already mentioned, prostitution, where mm. you really get a sense of, of what was the medieval mindset of the time, uh, where they say that, that prostitution is tolerated because of the belief that if men don't get their rocks off, they're going to lose their minds. So you, you don't really want prostitution, but you need it because otherwise, you know, men are going to go crazy because they can't have sex which is unfortunately, I think, an idea that that is is still around somewhere. Yeah, but but yeah. here it's it's just the yeah. the thing, um, and and you you get a lot of little things like clothing not having pockets, which we've brought up before. So mm. you don't really have pickpockets; you have cut purses because yeah. you cut the purse strings. You don't pick a pocket. Yeah. So yeah, it's a really solid section here. Yeah, it's uh, there. There are a few things that that I wanted to pick up on. Like, for or it's it's not really a critique, but again, something they they could just throw in, and and that is that that prostitutes uh, often had to distinguish themselves in uh, in their outfits in some way, and, and oh, yeah, this of course yeah. differs from uh, from time to time and and where in Europe you were. But uh, so, for example, in in certain places, you had to wear. Um, uh, a yellow stripe on their hoods, for example, or or you weren't allowed to wear certain types of, of fabrics or, or jewelry, and that was to set them apart. Yeah, so that... I've I've seen I've seen the shoes that the uh, prostitutes in Venice were required yeah. to wear, and holy crap, um, you know those platform boots that uh, yeah. that that are popular, especially among goth girls. Uh, just imagine a soul. That high, but not a sole. Just two relatively narrow planks coming down from the shoe. Yeah. Then you get an idea of what the shoe looks like. I mean, that that looks directly dangerous to wear. Yeah, yeah it is, and and it's it's to set them apart and to to show that they're they're a prostitute, and and you also had other other ways of showing because it, it was kind of like society wanted uh, not only the prostitutes themselves to know that this is this is a fallen woman but also everyone else so if you if you're a nobleman uh, you you're supposed to hang around with only your your class of, of people or all people should really so prostitutes were often uh, they were forbidden from from wearing jewelry or any kind of fine clothing that could kind of trick people that they were of a higher social class than they actually were mm. so they, they were kind of restricted in in that um, so so I think something like that could easily fit in this book in, in these 97 pages where you have a bunch of, of stories and pictures you, you could easily throw in a few sentences about that the other one from from a historical point of view is uh, is during the the small section on, on those who fight and and they're talking about military men as as kind of its own uh, and and they're not talking oh, yeah. about they're not talking about knights but they're talking about like people being professional soldiers and and the were yeah. there were professional soldiers during this time but most of the uh, of the soldiers actually fighting a war were levied troops they were basically peasants so so in this book when they talk about when the war is over you have a problem with roving bands of soldiers not being able to find work and so they turn to brigandry that was a problem but it wasn't a problem that really started to show until like the hundred years war uh, and that was also one of the reasons why the hundred years war 
went on for so long because like holy shit we've we've had had peace for for a year and now we have hundreds of of uh, soldiers turned brigands running around and they're raiding my crops fuck it i'm gonna invade france for just a bit and so i can just get rid of these uh, yeah exactly these because soldiers. those who f- those who fight don't mean soldiers of this time those who fight yeah. means nobles and yeah. like you said most most other soldiers were conscripted and even those who weren't those who were professional men at arms which like you said there weren't that many of they were still seen as being uh those who toil peasants yeah. just like merchants were yeah. because anyone who wasn't a nobleman or a uh, a, a cleric uh, a member of the church were one of those who worked and and they they were considered peasants it's at this point that we see a change that that people start to recognize the concept of burgers but mm. but they're still lumped into the same group so you're absolutely right they make a bit of a mistake here by putting all fighting men into this uh, the same group though it did happen from time to time that knights usually um unlanded knights so yeah. third fourth sons uh, became brigands. I think in England they were called something like road barons or highway barons or something like that. Um, yeah. And of course, if you have someone with that level of training and the equipment, they can be quite an effective brigand. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. So. But, but again, like most most people who fought in wars were probably peasants or some. They they had a day job, so to speak. And we see it. Yeah. Like our our favorite Vikings, like they they. When they went the Viking during the summers or, or perhaps for a few years, and then when they came back, they, they would toil the land just as their neighbors. So it's it's not like it's not an uncommon thing that that peasants knew how to fight, uh, which again can be interesting from a role playing perspective. Like if 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 your characters expect uh, the the peasant that they want to feed on to just be some a peasant, but it turns out that no, he he just came back from a war and he has PTSD and he has a scythe and he knows how to use it. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, so you have that aspect. Um, but yeah, one uh, one thing I really wish they they touched upon because in the beginning they they point out that we're not dealing with the sort of organized underworld here, mm. but they could have talked a bit about how vampires might organize underworlds because yeah. there's one thing that a lot of vampires are into it's organization and yeah. creating a domain. So the one thing that I in this uh, I was about to say day and age, but it's vampire night and age prevents. Um, criminal organization is uh, the fact that in most places there isn't enough room for it, but also the idea of a centralized authority for that sort of thing hasn't occurred. But if you are in a big city, you could definitely have a vampire who has the time and the powers to organize the beggars and the thieves and especially things like smugglers if it's a trade city. Yeah, into an exactly. organized underworld you're you're still not going to get the the thieves guild of of fantasy but you could still imagine this thing of of a vampire trying to get a bit more organization in order to expand their their power so i i, I kind of wish they touched upon the possibility because they do touch upon it in the next chapter where they talk about uh, rural crime with vampires yeah. organizing robber gangs so so yeah. they could have yeah. they could have talked about it a bit here yeah, I, I agree, and I hadn't actually thought about it, but but now that you mention it, because like the the most common reason why people steal is to feed themselves. Uh, so if you have 
a thief or a few thieves that don't they, who who don't need to feed or at least they don't need to eat food, then they can <laughs> sp spend a lot of time organizing and and building up something. Like so, so for example, when when we talk about stealing, and I I do like the fact that, uh, that in the later chapter they they talk about uh, stealing um, cloth uh, cloth from from wool merchants. So you you mm. didn't just steal money because there was still a lot of bartering and trading going on. So if if you rob a place and as a vampire thief and you steal not only a bunch of jewelry, but also a few sacks of grain that you can share with your uh, fellow, yeah, let's call them a thief scale just for fun, but but you can share it with your fellow thieves yeah. uh, because you you don't have any uh, use for, for grain or, or meat or, or pickled herring or whatever. So you can just hand it out as a boon to, to your uh, recruits. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a good thing. Uh, but b before leaving this chapter, though, there was one thing I was wondering if, if you noticed, um, uh, and, and that was uh, during on, on the section of on different uh, uh, versions of, of trials or how you could uh, try your case. So you have the different you, you could carry iron and you could uh, walk on. Oh coats. yes, carrying iron. <laughs> yeah, that that that's a, a well-known one from uh, from Danish history where. Uh, according to legend, uh, a Danish king was persuaded to um, become Christian because there was a, um, a Christian monk that carried a piece of heated iron and his hands didn't burn at all and it was God who um, who protected him. Ah, so, yeah. so yeah, when I, I read that, I was like, ah, yeah, that's that's a part of, of Danish uh, legendary history. Yeah. Probably didn't happen, we don't know. Yeah, but it's, it's a cool story. But I was thinking about, because they also touch upon... Uh, judicial duels. Oh uh, yes. And and the thing that I um, reacted to was the fact that they say that that women di weren't allowed to uh, to partake in judicial duels. And you've you, you you've done Hema, so um, you're at least yeah with with Talhofer. Uh, Talhofer people. Okay, here's the thing, people. If you can Google, then pause the podcast now and then basically Google. Talhofer, judicial duel, man, woman. If you can't do it after you have uh, you've read this, or sorry, listen to this, and then check out the picture, because oh my god, that picture. Yeah. So so what it is, and and it's of course it's from the what 15th century. So it's it's something like that. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, Talhofer is is a guy who wrote a um, fencing or a, or a sword fighting or, or a fighting in general. Uh, I think he, I think he wrote more than one, but I'm not 100 yeah, percent sure. He that was his thing. He he was a a, a sword master, uh, and one of the uh, one of the section covers uh, is uh, judicial duels, where not only do you have some really strange weapons, uh, which could yeah probably... those spiked shields. Yeah, um, those yeah, were weird. Those are the ones I'm thinking about, which again might be useful in a in a duel uh, or a, at least a judicial duel, where the point wasn't necessarily to to kill your opponent, because if you kill them, then you can't find them. Uh, uh, <laughs> but but rather to just defeat them. But there's also a section about how uh, women are supposed to duel against um, their their husbands. Uh, so it was a thing that that women would duel uh, not only each other but but also men, uh, and we we don't have any uh, material from this early that depicts how it should be because 
women got a bit of a handicap and and you have different versions one one is that um, the woman is supposed to uh, stand in in a pit in the ground or a hole in the ground up to her what is it to, uh, to her I think it's just just over her waist and then she has a, a club yeah right? she has yeah she has a club and she's supposed to knock over her husband or the man she's dueling and in at least in one version he's supposed to swing like a, a sack with something heavy in it yeah ba- basically like. a, a a sack with a rock in it i do believe he's supposed to have he, he does that with his right hand and he has his left hand bound behind his back and she's in a hole with a club and it's just what the hell yeah so what were you smoking yeah uh probably some kind of mushroom if, if we go by <laughs> what's available but but yeah so, so you had you have not only do you have women who are, are actually allowed to fight in judicial duels you also have them fighting in in what i can only assume is, is hilarious uh, ways so so again it, it would be kind of interesting like if they would have just thrown that in there and and perhaps even i don't know if it, it was widely available back then but but it would be fun if they could just have that picture from that yeah uh, from that manual just just as a background picture you don't even need to to explain no. it in any way. And I think, throw it I think that particular duel is specifically uh, reserved for if it's a uh, man and wife dueling over something. If, if there's like a marital problem, then that is specifically how they're supposed to duel. I think it's reserved for married couples. Like It's been a long time since I read about it, but basically people just try reading about that because yeah. it's, it's crazy. And... It's it's it it would be easy to say okay this is just someone's overactive imagination but no he was writing this book as a book of um, of basically instructions so that you could prepare yourself yeah, for judicial yeah. duels it, it was, so it was a handbook yeah it, it it was something that he was expecting to make money off of mm. so he would include stuff that was useful. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I completely missed that when I sat down to re- uh, write my notes. That that yeah, obviously I should have I should have catch, caught up on that one because it's just it's one of those things that I bring up whenever I I want to illustrate just how weird some some stuff was back in the Middle Ages. Yeah, you had that uh, judicial tool. And and again, going back to what what I was talking about earlier, it it shows that if if you if you have a society where it's it's uh, um, restricted or put into code everything even down into how a married couple settle their their uh, their um, domestic disputes through a duel it sets quite a lot about that society so again you can throw it in like i don't know have have again have that malkavian prince uh, force people to to settle their disputes by by throwing chickens at each other or something like that just go go crazy with it because the worst well, for that matter have a like... have a have a prince who is very inspired by these judicial duels say that every uh, dispute in his territory or her territory has to be settled by judicial duels duels and then having invent a lot of of uh, weird rules invented like okay if it's a sire and child who are dueling oh, then then yeah, the sire yeah. has to do one thing and the child has to do another yeah. thing uh so so stuff like that and like you said it shows something because the fact that he put it in there shows that there must have been enough of these situations yeah. that he thought it worthwhile to put it in the book which means that we know that at least in in uh, the holy roman empire which is where talhofer uh, was from there must have been enough 
disputes between men and women ending in judicial duels between men and women that he thought it um, worthwhile to put in a book that he wanted to make money off of, that he wanted to be able to sell to Burgers saying, read this book if you expect that you might end up in a judicial duel against mm. your wife or your husband. Uh, so it, it really shines a light on um, on how society must have been that, that he put this in his book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, we then transition transition into a section on the Prometheans, which is a sect of idealistic vampires who want to bring back what they acknowledge themselves might be a romanticized version of Carthage where vampires and mortals existed in harmony. Now, to me, this feels very misplaced. I don't really know why it's in this section. It could have been its own chapter, but I wonder why it's even in this book. Sure, they're a bit of an outcast group in canine society, and they're explained as having connections with mortal criminals, but it still feels a bit odd and sort of forced into place here. And also, I'm not a fan of this entire section being written in character, but that's just a personal preference from me. Others I know like having things written in character. I'm just not a big fan of it in most cases. Now, I think the Prometheans are can be interesting uh, and they, they can be fun to include in a game but yeah this kind of came out of left field yeah i i agree again if if we're talking about what should be in this book it it feels kind of um yeah it, it, again like you said out of left field and it, it feels kind of weird like why why do we spend so much uh, space in this book on on this sect i i really do like the sect uh, but I agree that the the way it is set up that you you have uh, basically a bunch of different storytellers handing off their uh, in introducing themselves and and explaining why they belong to to the Prometheans uh, and then they go like yeah and now I'm gonna hand it over to the to Anthony who's the Tremere and now he's gonna tell you what the what what the Prometheans can can offer the Tremere if if they want to join uh, which in in one way, it's it's kind of fun way to to do like why would this clan belong to this sect or whatever? But it's it's a bit heavy-handed and and it's not very well written. I think uh, it, it doesn't really do it for me. Um, I I do like the fact that that they kind of mention that they take the name um, f- f- to to sound more important that they really are. That that yeah we, yeah. My my sire told me about his sire, who told me or, or who told him about how uh, Carthage and and the Prometheans and stuff like that was was something really cool and and how it was against authority. So now to to gain some of that credit, we're just gonna steal that and and claim that we're kind of descendants to that. Uh, so I like that part. Uh, yeah, they're I, one of the more self-aware groups of yeah, vampires, yeah. which which is kind of refreshing from from, from yeah. time to time. Yeah, um, and, and I also like how how you have um, because one of the other cool things in this book is you have a few like small uh, sidebars with with kind of in character uh, stories about, for example, how important it is or how useful. Uh, rather, it can be to have a, a beggar sitting outside a church because then he will listen to all the, the gossip. Uh, mm. And and so first you have uh, the, the Settite explaining why why she is a member of the Prometheans. And then you have one of these um, in-character sidebars uh, where 
the very same Setite is basically writing to her sire and, and saying that, yeah, I've, I've managed to infiltrate these idiotic Prometheans and, and just give me a while and I'll corrupt the hell out of all of them and, and they will do your bidding, dear sire, uh, which is just so excellent in a Setite yeah. way. Uh, so yeah, again, the, the self-awareness is, is uh, quite, uh, quite spot on, which I love. Yeah. So chapter two takes a look at crime outside of the city and then a little bit extra at the end, which we'll get to. Uh, The first part is written in character. And once again, I'm not the biggest fan of that approach, but we do get an intro uh, to what might be called non-urban crime and how to involve canines in it. Uh, And after that, uh, after the in character section, we get some good advice on how to run a game uh, revolving around rural crime. And once again, we get a lot of good setting information for the medieval era. Mm. Uh, so what did you think of this particular section? Yeah, I, I liked it. Uh, I, I like the fact that they uh, mentioned the difference between a forest and a wood, which is basically yeah. how, uh, how how well used it is, you can almost say. But, uh, but it's... it's uh, and and they talk about laws connected to to different areas and 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 poaching and and what you were allowed to uh, well not allowed to poach because you're not allowed to poach anything but what you're allowed to hunt depending on your social status. Uh, yeah. One one small thing that's just really weird uh, that that I noticed. I don't know if it's the only place in this book, but they talk about forest laws in England in 1197, and they talk about King Henry. Uh, the only problem is that King Henry died quite a few years ago, and it's Richard Lionheart who's the current king of England. Uh, yeah, and and in eleven ninety seven, I'm fairly certain he isn't in England. It's it's no, he's probably he's it's, probably fighting in France. But but yeah, he, either that or he's been captured. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, but it's well, John who's in charge. The one doesn't uh, exclude the other. Yeah, <laughs> that is um, true. Yeah, he didn't die until eleven uh, ninety nine, and then we have uh, famous from the uh, Robin Hood Disney movie Prince John taking over. Uh, yeah. Oh, and and uh, speaking of of Robin Hood, mm. uh, I think they do a really really good job of not, you know, getting into any kind of Robin Hood esque ideas or yeah. Robin Hood pastiche or inspired or anything, and they give a lot of good advice on how to avoid that without coming out and saying. Uh, don't do Robin Hood because yeah. I mean, if if you're doing uh, rural criminals outlaws mm. in this time, uh, Robin Hood is obviously going to be in everyone's mind, and and some of of the the stories, some of the things that happen in the stories can be inspirational, can shed some light on um, on uh, the medieval laws and society of the time. It's just that you don't want to go full on Robin Hood because. Not only can that be a bit, uh, you know, it can ruin the mood in a vampire game, yeah, but yeah. there will be people at the table who are fans of Mel Brooks' Men in Tights. Yeah, it it will turn silly in more than one way. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, what's 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 interesting about Robin Hood as as a concept is that uh, the or one of the reasons why the stories about Robin Hood became so popular was um, because you you had such as Strong. I don't know if you should call it tradition or, or, or history, uh, but you had a history of um, of people turning outlaws in England, uh, and it it kind of goes back to we, we talked about it a bit before with um, with people being excommunicated. In that it, it just because you were excommunicated, 
uh, and they talk about that in this book as well, which I like. It, it, it doesn't mean that you have to be it for the rest of your life. It was basically a way for the church or when it comes to outlaws, the, um, uh, the, the king or, or whoever outlawed you to kind of like, okay, uh, this is your basically your last chance of redemption. It's going to be expensive to undo the outlawing or excommunication, but you probably want to do do that because uh, because the, the alternative is going to be worse for you. So um, in England, you had people that were outlaws for a time, and it could be because perhaps the leech lords was uh, were in a conflict with another leech lord, so you would go and and raid. Uh, and then, uh, your your neighbor uh, who happened to know the sheriff and the sheriff would outlaw you so you had no choice so you would go into the forest and be be an outlaw for a time but then when the conflict was over you could usually um, you, you you could usually just ask for forgiveness or pay a fine or, or whatever and you would stop being an outlaw at least if you were a man of at least some status uh, yeah. Because if you didn't have influence, you you were kind of screwed anyway. Uh, but but yeah, you you did have uh, bands of people uh, and all different kinds of people and uh, so different social statuses and perhaps some of them were monks uh, or friars that would band mm-hmm. together. Well, in eleven ninety seven, they wouldn't be friars. No, that's, uh, because uh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, but but yeah, they could have been monks. And one of the things I really like here is that they mentioned that women could become outlaws yeah. as well. Yeah. And I mean, if you're living uh, out, if you're living rough out beyond the cities, mm. then you're probably not going to put too much stock in um, saying, okay, women stay home and make the food, and men go on do the work. No, everybody does the work. So if you uh, if you want. A situation where men and women can be almost equal, and where you can have women who might not have learned uh, how to be a soldier, but will have learned some fighting skills. Yeah. Then being an outlaw is definitely one of the the places to go. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, yeah, like you mentioned, women women would if if you're a woman who has turned outlaw, <laughs> you would probably do pretty much what everyone else was doing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, after uh, this section, we take a short look at pirates and piracy. Peter, you're the sailor, so let me hear your take. Yeah, well, I've, I've touched upon the, uh, the worst problem already, and that's yeah. uh, the completely messed up uh, ship on, on page 54. But, uh, but yeah, uh, piracy was a thing uh, and has been, like, Julius Caesar was once captured by pirates. Uh, so it's it's been around for ages. You have it, and he got his revenge on them. Yeah, he did. Uh, and uh, what was it? He he promised to, to he, yeah, he, he said when yeah. when I get when I get out of here, because I am such a powerful man, I'm going to crucify you. Yeah. And the pirate said said yeah right, you're just uh, bragging. And then his ransom was paid, and then he spent quite a few years hunting them down and crucifying them. Yeah. Probably going told ya. Yeah. <laughs> He would be the kind of guy who would say that. Uh, but yeah, yeah. You, you have um, you have pirates all over the world. Uh, what, what I don't like is that they mention uh, privateers, which is a much later yeah. thing. Uh, if you're a privateer, you you have a letter of mark, which comes around in the 1600s when uh, when when you start getting. Uh, actual naval, or at least in Europe, naval powers. You had them in China already, but uh, or in, in East Asia in general. But uh, 
you uh, piracy uh, or or just people committing crimes on the high seas uh, were a thing uh, the Hanseatic League one of the reasons they were created was to to fight the pirates uh, on the Baltic seas uh, yeah you, which they did incredibly well by the yeah. way uh, you you also had a Teutonic knight who um, occupied the the island of Gotland and the city of of Visby for about 10 or 20 years in in late 1300s uh, and it was a really good deal for the people being occupied because if you oh, had yeah. a bunch of knights guarding your city and your trade the pirates stayed away it wasn't as a good deal for the Teutonic knights because it cost them a lot of money uh, so when they decided to leave in the early 1400s, uh, a delegation from the city of Visby actually a- asked them to stay because it was so lucrative for the city. Uh, they didn't, though. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, you, you had again, you had people from uh, from all kinds of uh, or all parts of society uh, turning to piracy. You have uh, the uh, king called Erik of Pommern, who was a king of uh, Denmark, uh, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden uh, during yep. the 1400s, uh, because it was the Kalmar Union back then. Uh, when he was, he was actually ousted uh, from his throne quite a few times uh, because he kept not keeping his promises, and the nobles. He wasn't the best king we've ever had, I would no, say. No, no, it's and it's quite fun that both the Danes and Swedes agree on that but uh, <laughs> he he actually turned to piracy again on the island of uh, of Gotland because the Teutonic Knights weren't around uh, also but, I mean the placement of Gotland yeah, in it's, it's uh, the strange. Baltic Sea yeah yeah, yeah so um, but, but again you you had a king who turned to piracy because he did that uh, and and you had uh, Eustace the monk who they talk about who is uh, a fictional character and and probably a precursor to Friar Tuck, according to certain scholars, uh, going back to Robin Hood, because you can see in the stories of, of Robin Hood that they took elements from other uh, famous and interesting and cool stories and kind of chucked them in uh, as, as the centuries went by to, to kind of expand the, uh, the, the Robin Hood cinematic universe, I guess. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Uh, and... and um, Maid Marion is is uh, she turns up uh, or a proto Maid Marion turns up in in French romances in I think the the twelve hundreds and then they match her up with Robin and stuff like that. But yeah, uh, Eustace the monk uh, he did piracy amongst other things. So um, yeah, you you have precedents for all kinds of people being not only criminals and outlaws but also pirates. Yeah, and I would have really loved more here because I think they, they only really scratched the surface and there's a lot of things they don't mention. Like, for example, uh, the English Channel mm. was rife with yeah. pirates yeah. Uh, because so much trade was going back and forth between uh, England and especially Flanders that it was well worth it to uh, to have pirates here. Uh, they do make a, a classic mistake which kept... Keeps on being made throughout Dark Ages, which they mention um, the Hanseatic League. They mention the recent alliance between uh, Hamburg and Lübeck. Uh, that alliance was made in 1241. Mm. So, uh, uh, but but it's just that the Hanseatic League is such an iconic and an interesting yeah. thing that that there is a tendency to include it a bit too early. But no, the the original alliance between between Hamburg and Lübeck, which then led 
to the Hanseatic League was in 1241, and we have the documents yeah. from uh, from that one. And yeah, they they then went to war against uh, various groups of, of pirates. And it's a really an, an interesting story, though obviously that's uh, a couple of hundred years uh, later than this. Uh, so we end this chapter with a look at the Banu Sasan, the semi-organized Islamic underworld of beggars and thieves. And uh, I did just a tiny bit of research online just to uh, figure out what was what. And it, it actually seems pretty accurate that, yeah, there was this sort of organ, semi-organized thing that called themselves the Banu Sasan. Um, and what little we get is very interesting. I interesting and i think it's full of cool stuff to add to a game that takes place in or passes through islamic lands but you know i just wonder why it's placed here because it's it's focused on urban crime uh, and they say yeah. that that western europe is their focus and this is outside of western europe so technically it's it's outside crime but no it's it's still urban crime so i i i sh i think it should have been in the earlier chapter on urban crime. Yeah, I, I agree. There there are some uh, editing that could have been done in this book to to fix it up a bit. But but yeah, I, I agree. It's uh, again, it's it's fun that we get something else besides the Eurocentric stuff. Uh, and uh, if nothing else, if you're if you're uh, doing a, a campaign or a game set in in Jerusalem or, or some other parts of the world, uh, it's it's fun to to mix it up a bit. Yeah, I mean, currently I'm I'm working on a book for the Storytales Vault where one of the, the uh, it, it's four individual scenarios. One of them takes place in Marrakesh in uh, Morocco, and after reading this, I'm definitely going to be including some some semi-organized beggars and thieves mm. because it just looks so cool. Yeah. Um, so the last chapter is all about the Furores, the rebels and revolutionaries that will kick off the Anarch Rebellion and will eventually become the Sabbath and the Anarchs. Mm. This is really well written and it gives a great look at the Furores uh, for use both uh, as the focus in a campaign or as allies or as antagonists or possibly just background events. One thing that I really love is that they mention a few times how the Furores are not modern-day egalitarian yeah. democratic crusaders, yeah. but they're a mixed bag of people who want, to, who want change and they want it now, damn it. Uh, some of them might, just, might want to set up a merit, meritocratic republic. Others are looking for an autocracy or a theocracy. I, I really like how the Furores are described here, and I think it's a great source to have if you're ever going to, uh, to play a game that ends up going through the Anarch Revolt. Yeah, I, I agree. Um... And as I mentioned in the what was it Winds of the East chapter uh, or book when when we did that uh, podcast uh, where you had uh, oh what were it called the basically the Eastern uh, uh, the Endergangrel the yeah the Endergangrel yeah and uh, and uh, I talked about it it would be fun if if instead of them just being uh, gangrel they could be their own sect uh, because I yeah. I like. Um, I, I like it when when you have not just the the, the Camarilla and, and the Sabbath that you could, especially in such a volatile and uh, changing uh, part of history as as uh, the Dark Ages and medieval times uh, and then the Renaissance. It, it, I think it's cool that you can have these smaller sects that perhaps just live on for for a couple of hundred years, which is pretty much nothing from a vampire point of view, but they could still affect stuff and they could uh, it, they could influence uh, people and canines and and uh, tell you how 
uh, why why vampires in the modern age are the way they are uh, because if if nothing else like the the prometheans basically disappear if if i understand things correctly and the andan as well they they kind of just go the way of the dodo yeah but like like i mentioned with with being an outlaw just because you're an outlaw for a couple of years doesn't mean that you have to either die an outlaw or or uh, win the revolution so to speak you could have been a member of the Prometheans when you, back when you were young, and then something happened, and you, you got your ass kicked, and you laid low for a couple of decades, and then when you come back in the 1500s or, or even the 1800s or in the modern times, you can meet up with with someone and uh, another ancient vampire, and someone like, hey, didn't you used to hang out with those rebels back in the back, you know, when when the Robin Hoods were running around in the forest and stuff <laughs> like that. Um, and and it, again, it's it's a way to create world building and, and characters, or it could be just a dark secret that oh, this guy used to be a Ferrara and now he's one of the Camarilla's uh, top dogs. Uh, so yeah, uh, it's, yeah. Again, mix it up a bit. Yeah, and you know when when I was reading this, uh, especially when I was reading the sections on what happens when the Ferraris actually win in mm-hmm. an area, I got some serious uh, Paris commune of 1871 vibes where you have like the revolutionaries have won yeah but the revolutionaries are made up of some very different people who want different things so now they're all uh ending up uh fighting each over uh, each other over well how are we going to rule the domain now and then some elder can swoop in and uh, and sort of of uh, take over so it 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 very well uh explains why the furoris haven't managed to actually oust the elders it's because that even when they do win it is very very rare for them to actually be able to set up a uh, a working domain yeah, because yeah. they they they're united by their uh, firebrand uh, revolutionary ideals but they haven't really thought about what do we do when we actually get what we want which is also i think why you you get the camarilla because suddenly elders started working mm-hmm. together yep. towards a fixed goal, yeah. and and the the Anarchs just couldn't compete with that. Yeah, uh, but speaking of 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 uh, areas that actually work, we end with some furore domains that do work. But you had something you wanted to say? No, I'm I'm just thinking it's it's the old joke about the I think it's it's an old comic where where you have a dog who's chased the car and is is finally caught it and. And it's like, yeah. So what I do now, now that I caught it, it's like the the, the Ferrari is, is in in some ways kind of like a dog chasing a car. They they do know that they want to catch it and and do something with it, but they have no idea what to actually do with it if they would have if they would uh, yeah if they caught it. Uh, but but yeah. Um, so one thing you have to watch out for here, we talked about having to watch out for Robin Hood earlier, you kind of have to watch watch out for um, Monty Python Life of Brian here yeah, with, yeah. Uh, <laughs> with the People's, Repu- uh, yeah. People's Front of Judea and Judean People's Front and yeah. all that sort of thing. Or for that matter, if, if anyone starts setting up an anarcho-syndicalist commune, yeah. um, there, there, there's just so much Monty Python you want to avoid in situations like this. Yeah, Monty Python is great, but it's, it's not really vampire material, unfortunately. Yeah. 
but as I mentioned, this chapter ends with a description of three furore domains. One of them is a monastery, so we do get our vampires in monasteries. Oh, of course we um, do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, one of them is uh, located in Finland, and since your part Finnish, uh, what do you think about this one? Uh, I, I think it was an interesting idea. Uh, th- it's, some of the geography doesn't make sense because it's it's basically a bunch of, of um, Vikings and Viking uh, vampires who are tired of Christianity and decide that, yeah, we're just going to go away and hide until this newfangled silly thing that is Christianity goes away. Uh, but the way they describe it is, is kind of weird because it says that as, as a ruse or to cover the tracks, they uh, they tell everyone that they're sailing for Greenland and then they're uh, heading up a few fjords and then uh, just just walking to where they're going. Uh, and the problem is that if if you're sailing to, to Greenland, you have to go west. Uh, if you want to find fjords, you then have to go north up, up to Norway uh, and if you're going to walk from Norway to Finland, you have quite a long way to go. Uh, well, okay, in the very northernmost part, Finland and Norway actually border uh, each other, but it's it's still kind of a weird way to go because you, you're going to have to find camp for the days and stuff like that. So it's... Yeah, there's kind of this thing called the Gulf of Finland that's in the way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, you can go north of that, but then you have to go through mountains and really bad terrain and and or or sweden uh but but yeah it's, it's like <laughs> which is know, even worse <laughs> yeah exactly but it's like yeah we're you're going the wrong way but i don't know perhaps that's yeah. part of bruce uh but <laughs> for the actual commune or or um uh, or or sector uh the free state as they call it uh, it could probably work because it isn't that big and it's mostly uh, mortal people and I, I do like the fact that they kind of made it up to be not just vampires hiding out from, from elders but rather we're a bunch of pagans and we want to stay pagans so we go as far away as, as we can think of uh, which is the northern part of Finland yeah which is I mean that's taking your ideals to the extreme to go live in northern Finland yeah in more ways than once but it's <laughs> well the the good thing is that it's uh it's very secluded and at least during the winters you're going to have a lot of time to to hang around doing stuff during the well during nights because the nights are so long on the other hand uh you will have very long summer days uh and you will be in competition of of the supply of of blood with all of the mosquitoes so, <laughs> oh yeah the mosquitoes yeah the, the mosquitoes um, are horrible in that part um they also have new lacedemonia which holds a, a kind of a, a special place in my heart because um when they they sort of ended the world of darkness uh, the 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 old run on the world of darkness and and then transition into vampire the requiem and stuff like that mm. Dark Ages was originally supposed to go on, and I was at that point working with a couple of other writers on Brugia Chronicles, and oh, yeah. uh, that was supposed to be uh, a book in the vein of of things like um, Giovanni Chronicles and mm. True Chronicles, a single book with four individual scenarios, and the scenario that I was writing actually took place on New Lacedaemonia, oh, which is described cool. here in the book, uh, which is yeah this this semi furore 
um, domain set up on a Greek island uh, led by a Bruja and and espousing the Bruja uh, ideals of, of old Carthage and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, and while I was working on that, I got the uh, the call that Dark Ages had been cancelled as, as well. Uh, so I I finished I finished the first draft of the scenario. I had actually play tested it as well. Um, I hadn't sent it in for uh, for editing yet, but I'd gotten that far, and then I was told it was cancelled, and I was just like, ah, because oh, Clan yeah. Brucia is one of my absolute favorite clans, and the idea of working on uh, Brucia Chronicles was just really, really cool. Um, I then repurposed it as a convention scenario, so I've run it a couple of times at uh, at conventions, um, but I, it's just, I you know... Think, didn't you run it... Was was that where you had a, a female True Bruja character? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah we, we did that. I played in that one. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah it that, was, was, uh, that was a cool game. Yeah, I've, I've run it a couple of times on various um, uh, forum cons, which... That that takes us back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a while ago since we uh, since we did those. Anyway, yeah. uh, we end <laughs> with an appendix of uh, of four templates appropriate for this book. And people, you know how these templates work, so I really don't have any comments on them. Do you? Uh, no, I'm I'm just going to mention that the the except for the artwork of of the Timish, uh, I really didn't like any of them because. Like you, you have a highwayman who looks like a vampiric Conan the Barbarian cos- cosplayer, uh, and and the rest are uh, just basically very much fantasy characters. But but yeah. Yeah, exactly. So this is not a long book, which makes sense since there's a lot less information about criminals in the Middle Ages than about knights. So they just didn't have uh, that much to work with. Now, before we look at the historical and game information, I will reiterate that I feel it was a bit jumbled in its layout of mm. sections. Some should have been in other chapters than, uh, or should have been their own chapter. So I, I think, you know, it's not something that detracts from, from the rest of it. It's just, it, it's a bit annoying when you read through stuff and wonder, why is it here? But anyway, historically, I like all the information we're given. I just wish that there was more of it. Yeah. I think they could have delved deeper into laws, crimes, and punishment. But this does give you enough information that you can run most stories. Uh, uh, and if you want to involve these themes more, you can always do more of your own research. So what do you think of the, the history uh, that was that was presented in this book? Yeah, well, except for the, the minor things that I've mentioned. And, and like the, it's, it's kind of a silly mistake to make. To if to to not looking up who the king is in the <laughs> setting, but but except for the few minor mistakes and 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 stuff like that that I've already mentioned, uh, I I agree with you that I like the stuff that we got, but I feel that we should have or I wanted more of the same kind of stuff uh, because it's it, like like you mentioned that the the Prometheans and uh, and also, in a way, I feel that the Ferrara, like, I can see kind of the connection to uh, to a, a book about medieval crime and undergrounds and yep. stuff like that. But but I feel that you, I'd, I'd rather have more on actual medieval crime stuff or vampiric crime. And then perhaps, like, if you want to know more about these sects, check out this book, which would be 
an, its own book about the Prometheans and and the Ferroris, for example. Well, I can I can understand why they involve the Ferroris because they are the ultimate lawbreakers of Canite society. So it's kind of like they involve the the Grail Knights in the um, in the Night Book. This yeah, is okay, this yeah. is the vampiric knights, these are the vampiric criminals. So with the Furores, I can understand why they chose to put them in this book, but but the Prometheans, that just, that feels weird. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I get your argument there, but uh, again, I, I'm just feeling that if, if they would have given the Furores their own book, even if it's oh, a yeah. smaller one, then you would have space to include more of the stuff that I would, would have wanted in this book. Though, of course, we must we must remember that perhaps your average gamer, even a gamer who's playing Dark Ages, might not be as interested in a bunch of historical information yeah. as we are. But on the other hand, I'm thinking if you're playing Dark Ages, uh, then then I feel like you should be interested in, in historical information. And as fun as it can be doing your own research, the reason why we buy this, these books is to be given yeah. the information yeah. condensed. So I, I, will, I will defend asking for more information, <laughs> yeah. historical information in this book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to back you on that one. <laughs> uh, as a game resource, I think it's worth the price. Um, you know, if for, for game-specific things, for the Prometheans and the Furores, as much as, as I don't think the Prometheans belong, and, and you know, we uh, the, the Furores might not, be, because they add a lot to the game. Mm. There are... Perhaps surprisingly, no rules uh, information on how to commit various crimes, though uh, there were some rules in the core book on how to do things, but they could maybe have included some stuff on, well, how do you pick the locks that exist at this time? How do you uh, cut a purse? Stuff like that. I, I can't remember how much of that is mentioned in the core book. Um, so all in all, I think this is a good book. It's not going to uh, top my list, but I still think it's worth the price. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Uh, it, it does have quite a lot of, of advice on, for example, during the chapter on piracy, that's how how pirates would uh, approach their victims. Perhaps some would uh, try to, to uh, be merciful, because if, if you get a reputation of being merciful, then people won't, won't fight you. On the other hand, if you have a reputation of, of being really vicious, then perhaps people won't fight you either. And, and maneuvering ships and stuff like that and and the same you had the same information on on the rural uh on the rural crimes like how you set up an ambush for uh for a night if if all you have is a bunch of peasants and and some rope basically so so it did include a lot of uh useful advice uh and and storytelling advice as well on how to like are you going to run a furore campaign uh, are you going to run a Promethean game and stuff like that, which I like? But uh, yeah, it's it's again what I what I didn't like about this book is is what it lacked rather. Yeah, exactly. Um, there, I mean, it's always walking a bit of a balance, uh, but at the same time. We are doing this podcast in order to talk about history, so uh, obviously we're going to uh, to want as much history to talk about as possible. Mm. Uh, so the next book we're taking a look at will be House of Tremere, one of the very few books in this line that I haven't read 
at all. So I'm actually uh, I'm looking forward to getting into that. As for side quests, as we mentioned last time, we're taking a bit of a summer break. Um, we'll let you know on Facebook if we decide to record one or two uh, side quests over the next months. But uh, otherwise, we're going to be enjoying the summer holiday and we uh, we hope that you will as well yeah. peter do you have any last comments before we sign off uh no i'm i'm just i i mentioned it briefly the last uh episode but i'm i'm gonna keep on dropping hints that i i'm probably gonna have some kind of surprise for you at the end of the summer uh when which which is one of the reasons why we won't have uh, that many side quests uh but hopefully yeah. you'll enjoy it uh it, it might be that our uh, patrons will get either a sneak peek or a bit more of it, uh, but I'm hoping that everyone will enjoy it. Excellent. Right. Well, then it is goodbye from me, Jacob. And from me, Peter. Farewell and see you next time. Goodbye.